Welcome to the JPGN podcast for November and December of 2009. I'm James Liu. This podcast will outline selected articles from this month's issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. For more information and to access the complete articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. Our first article is entitled Crohn's Disease and Mycobacterial Infection in Children, an Intriguing Relationship by Chiapini et al. The relationship between Crohn's disease and mycobacterial infection is complex and intriguing. The two conditions share common immunopathogenic features, and the hypothesis that Mycobacterium avium subspecies paratuberculosis may cause Crohn's disease is still under debate. Moreover, differential diagnosis between Crohn's disease and intestinal tuberculosis may be challenging, especially in the growing proportion of children immigrating from countries at high prevalence for TB. Thus, in Western countries, pediatricians who are involved in the diagnosis and management of Crohn's disease children are expected to face intestinal tuberculosis more frequently than in the past and should always consider the differential diagnosis between these two conditions. In addition, the use of biological agents in the treatment of Crohn's disease, which may reactivate latent tuberculosis, requires the development of targeted diagnostic algorithms. Children with Crohn's disease who are candidates for treatment with anti-TNF-alpha agents should be screened for latent or active tubercular disease and followed closely over time. Practitioners must also consider the possible failure of anti-tubercular prophylaxis and the frequent, uncharacteristic presentation of tuberculosis in children receiving anti-TNF-alpha agents. In this review, the most recent literature findings on these topics are reported, focusing particularly on the pediatric population. Our next article is entitled, Analysis of Fecal Volatile Organic Compounds in Preterm Infants Who Develop Necrotizing Enterocolitis, a pilot study, by Garner et al. The goal of this study was to measure volatile organic compounds, also known as VOCs, in the stool samples of preterm infants to determine if the differences in VOC profiles could identify infants who may be at risk for developing necrotizing enterocolitis. This prospective study obtained daily fecal samples from preterm infants over an eight-month period from a level 3 regional neonatal intensive care unit. During this period, six infants developed neck. These subjects were matched to seven healthy infant controls. VOCs from the headspace above the fecal samples were obtained and identified by various techniques, including solid phase microextraction, gas chromatography, and mass spectrometry. The VOCs from these subjects and their matched controls were analyzed before and after the onset of NEC. In total, 224 different VOCs were extracted from 65 samples. Interestingly, the healthy infants had increasing numbers of VOCs identified in their stool with advancing postnatal age. However, the infants who developed NEC had decreased VOCs in the days prior to and after the diagnosis of NEC. Specifically, Four esters were identified among the healthy infants, but were absent among the infants who developed neck. The authors concluded that VOC measurements from feces may be used to identify infants at risk for developing neck. Our next article is entitled, Esophageal Impedance and Esophagitis in Children. Any Correlation? by Salvatore et al. 
The aim of this study was to correlate the data obtained with multiple intraluminal esophageal impedance and pH recordings, or M2PH, in infants and children who were referred for suspected gastroesophageal reflux disease with esophageal histology. In a prospective study, results of esophageal biopsies and M2PH recording obtained in 45 children were analyzed. Automatic and manual readings were performed on the M2PH data, as well as an automatic pH analysis. The authors found that acid, weakly acid, and alkaline reflux episodes accounted respectively for 49%, 50%, and less than 2% of the total number of reflux episodes detected by M2PH. Meanwhile, esophagitis was present in 56% of the children. Concordance between classic pH study analysis alone and esophageal histology was found in 42% of the children. According to the M2PH analysis, the mean and median values of the pH were significantly higher in the group with esophagitis than in the group with normal esophageal histology. A longer clearance time was found in the group with esophagitis than in subjects with normal histology. Lastly, gas reflux episodes represented 21% of the total reflux episodes and were comparable in both groups. Based on this study, the authors concluded that M2-PH analysis does not provide a distinct parameter to predict esophageal mucosal injury in children. In this population, M2-PH shows comparable acid, weakly acid, alkaline, and gas reflux in children with and without esophagitis. Lastly, the authors note that further research is needed to analyze clearance parameters. Our next article is entitled, Safety, Efficacy, and Pharmacokinetics of Balsalazide in Pediatric Patients with Mild to Moderate Active Ulcerative Colitis by Kiros et al. A multi-center, double-blind study was conducted to evaluate the safety, efficacy, and pharmacokinetics of balsalazide in pediatric patients with mild to moderate UC. 68 patients, ages 5 to 17 years, with mild to moderate active UC based on the modified Sutherland UC Activity Index, were randomized to receive oral balsalazide 2.25 grams per day, or 6.75 grams per day, for 8 weeks. The primary endpoint was clinical improvement. Clinical remission and histological improvement after 8 weeks were also assessed. Pharmacokinetic parameters for balsalazide, 5-ASA, and N-acetyl-5-ASA were determined at two weeks. Clinical improvement was achieved by 45% and clinical remission by 12% in patients receiving 6.75 grams per day. For patients receiving 2.25 grams per day, 37% had clinical improvement and 9% had clinical remission. Improvement in histological grade was achieved by 50% of patients receiving 6.75 grams per day and 30% of patients receiving 2.25 grams per day. No significant differences were seen in efficacy. Adverse events were similar between treatment groups, most common being headache and abdominal pain. No clinically significant changes were observed in lab values. The authors conclude that balsalazide is well-tolerated and improves the signs and symptoms of mild to moderate active UC in pediatric patients. Our next article is entitled, Rotavirus Gastroenteritis, Precursor of Functional Gastrointestinal Disorders, by Saps et al. Abdominal pain-related functional GI disorders have been demonstrated following acute bacterial gastroenteritis in both adults and children. Previously, 
an adult study demonstrated such diseases resulting after an outbreak of viral gastroenteritis. This study attempted to demonstrate a similar connection in children and was the first multicenter study to attempt to do so. In this paper, the authors report on a cohort study of 44 children ages 4 to 18 years old and 44 age and sex match controls who were recruited from two hospitals in Chicago, Illinois and Naples, Italy from 2002 to 2004. These patients presented with acute gastroenteritis and were found to have rotavirus infections, and controls presented to the same hospitals for trauma or well-child care within four weeks of their matched cases. Subjects were contacted by phone at least two years after their initial presentation, and their GI symptoms and disability were assessed using the validated QPGS questionnaire. 16% of exposed cases and 7% of controls reported abdominal pain-associated functional GI disorders, a non-significant difference of 0.31. The authors conclude that rotavirus infection does not appear to confer an increased risk of abdominal pain-associated functional gastrointestinal disorders. Our next article is entitled, Evaluation of Liver Involvement in HIV-1 Vertically Infected Children with Non-Invasive Procedures by Rubio et al. The authors aimed to evaluate the feasibility of non-invasive hepatic investigations in HIV-1-infected children. They were concerned that repeat biopsies are too invasive in this population, where progressive liver injury develops as a result of viral cytopathic effects and long-term antiretroviral drug exposure. The researchers enrolled 26 school-aged children and adolescents with vertically transmitted HIV-1 infections. As a cross-sectional design, serologic liver enzymes, fibrotest, actitest, steatotest, Forns index, AST to platelet ratio index, ultrasound, and fibroscan were investigated. The results indicate that 19 of the 26 subjects had abnormal test results supporting liver involvement. This includes 13 patients with elevated liver enzymes, 15 with abnormal fibrotest, 8 with abnormal actitest, and 5 each with abnormal Forns index and or AST to platelet ratio index. Additionally, 4 of 26 subjects had mild steatosis on ultrasound. Fibroscan measures were higher in these patients as compared to age-matched healthy controls. These elevated fibroscan measures were also associated with elevated fibro test results. Finally, CDC classification HIV stage N and exposure to reverse transcriptase inhibitor therapy were major risk factors for hepatotoxicity. The authors conclude that more than half of their HIV-1 infected population had serologic and or radiographic evidence of liver disease, thus warranting routine non-invasive test follow-up. Our next article is entitled, Pulmonary Vascular Complications in Asymptomatic Children with Portal Hypertension, by Whitworth et al. The goal of this study was to determine the prevalence of portopulmonary hypertension, or PPHATN, hepatopulmonary syndrome, or HPS, and intrapulmonary vascular shunting, IPVS, in children with clinically stable portal hypertension and to assess the value of vasoactive peptide levels, biochemical tests, and clinical signs or symptoms to predict these conditions. A prospective cross-sectional analysis was conducted on 33 children ages 4 to 17 years with stable cirrhosis or extrahepatic portal hypertension. 
The children were screened for IPVS and hypoxia with contrast-enhanced echocardiography and pulse oximetry and screened for pulmonary hypertension with Doppler echocardiography. Chemistries, x-rays, physical examinations, and levels of vasoactive peptides were compared between subjects with IPVS and those with normal contrast-enhanced echoes. No subject was found to have any pulmonary hypertension. 19% had IPVS, all of whom had intrahepatic causes of portal hypertension, and one of whom had hepatopulmonary syndrome. Compared to subjects with normal contrast-enhanced echo, those with IPVS had biochemical evidence of more advanced liver disease and higher B-type natriuretic peptide levels. The authors conclude that PPHTN and HPS appear to be rare in clinically stable children with portal hypertension. IPVS was present in 19% of these patients. A novel finding of this study is the elevation of BNP in children with IPVS. Our final article is entitled, Protein Content and Fortification of Human Milk Influence Gastroesophageal Reflux in Preterm Infants by Aseti et al. Preterm human milk may provide insufficient energy and nutrients, and thus may need to be fortified. The goal of this study was to determine whether fat content, protein content, and osmolality of human milk before and after fortification may affect gastroesophageal reflux in symptomatic preterm infants. The investigators evaluated gastroesophageal reflux in 17 symptomatic preterm newborns fed naive and fortified human milk by combined pH intraluminal impedance monitoring. Human milk fat and protein content was analyzed by a near-infrared reflectance analysis. Human milk osmolality was tested before and after fortification. Gastroesophageal reflux indices measured before and after fortification were compared and were also related with human milk fat and protein content and osmolality before and after fortification. An inverse correlation was found between naive human milk protein content and acid reflux. After fortification, osmolality often exceeded the values recommended for infant feeds. Furthermore, a statistically significant increase in non-acid reflux indices was observed. The investigators concluded that protein content of naive human milk may influence acid gastroesophageal reflux in preterm infants. A standard fortification of human milk may worsen non-acid gastroesophageal reflux indices and due to the extreme variability in human milk composition may overcome both recommended protein intake and human milk osmolality. Thus, an individualized fortification based on the analysis of the composition of naive human milk could optimize both nutrient intake and feeding tolerance. This concludes the JPGN podcast for November and December of 2009. The executive producer is Daniel Gelfond. The editor-in-chief of JPGN is Eric Sibley. The JPGN podcast is recorded by the Pediatric GI Fellows of Stanford University. For more information and to access the full articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. I'm James Liu.